I'd like you to turn in your Bibles now to Hebrews chapter 4, and we're going to be looking today at verse 14 through verse 16 together as we are seeking to understand what it is that God will want to say to you and to me as we're preparing our hearts now and our minds for the bread and the cup. I don't personally speak of it as celebrating communion. I speak of it as commemorating the cross. I think it sets the right tone, the right mood for what it is we're doing because you move into more of a a reflective mode, don't you, as you think about the price that was paid for our sins. And so here now in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 through 16, the writer of Hebrews writing to second generation Jewish believers somewhere around A.D. 65 before the fall of Jerusalem. Pen these thoughts. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So we're going to be looking at these verses and more as we prepare our hearts now for the bread and the cup. Let's look to our Lord together in prayer. And Father, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for a very powerful book, the book of Hebrews, that draws us to the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Not merely prominent, but preeminent. We see the preeminence of his work on the cross, dying for our sins. The preeminence of his lordship being raised on the third day. The preeminence in all things. And that's what we want, Father, as we prepare our hearts now for the bread and for the cup. These three verses saturated with Jesus. Give us the opportunity now to put first things first. Set aside all the secondaries that would crowd out what's primary. And allow us, Father, to zero in on what matters most. So, Father, in these minutes together, as we now reflect seriously upon upon our Savior, we're asking that you again will now warm these hearts. Engage these minds and shape these wills. Come here, Father, to see Jesus, him only. We're praying these things again now, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Dr. Howard Kelly was known as one of the big four. He was a gynecologist, a leader, a surgeon, 
one of the founders of Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, and one who loved Christ dearly. As he was writing in his diary the night of his graduation, I dedicate myself, my time, my capabilities, my ambition, everything to Jesus, my blessed Lord. Sanctify me to your uses. Give me no worldly success which may not lead me nearer to my Savior. As Jesus was on that cross, and as people were hurling insights, insults at him, there was Jesus providing insight for us. Because upon that cross, at the time of his death, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And what he did through that significant achievement a one-time act in all of history, is that he allowed you and me to do what Dr. Kelly had written, to draw nearer, nearer to our God through our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, what we find here is the highly significant and powerful teachings that the Hebrew writer would deliver for us of what it means to draw near to God. And there are two significant urges, because this is an urgent message that this writer is delivering. Two significant urges that he pens for you and for me on what it means to draw near to God through Christ. Let's use this as a means to prepare our hearts for the bread and the cup. The first urge is flowing out of verse 14, and we're going to phrase it like this, number one. With faith in Christ as our great high priest, number one, let us hold fast our confession. Now you say, Gary, where do we get that from? Notice carefully the wording in verse 14. What the writer's doing is he's going to give you a reason for your faith. And then he will couple it with a responsibility in light of that reason pertaining to your faith. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Now, this writer has gone out of his way to prep us for this moment. Because in Hebrews chapter, in chapter 2, verse 17, he had written, Therefore, he had to be perfect like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself had suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. And then he would couple that, doesn't he, with chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. So there you have it. 
you have got yourself as a Protestant, a high priest. Now, notice the wording very carefully. It does not read, since then, there is a great high priest, does it? No, what it says is, since then, we have a great high priest. Notice carefully, then, the wording. He wants this to be personal for you. He wants you to have this sense of, I've got this dynamic, powerful relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We have, not there is, we have a great high priest. Now, the there is is perfectly valid and true. But when you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your Lord, you move from the there is to the we have, don't we? Since then, we have a great high priest. Now, what distinguishes Jesus from all other high priests is this. Throughout that Old Testament, each priest, whether it be Aaron or his successors, were sinful by nature. Each high priest would die. Each high priest would need a successor. Jesus appears on the scene, the sinless one dying for the sinful ones, the only sinless high priest, great high priest he is. And what you and I begin to think about here at this point is while they were sinful, he was sinless. While they needed a necessary successor, Jesus said, Tetelestai, it is finished. No successor is needed. Therefore, there is no repetition of sacrifices. Jesus, the great high priest, was the final sacrifice, dying in our place for our sins. And when you put your faith and trust in him, you move from the there is to the I have, to the we have. And it gets personal at this very point, doesn't it? Is it personal for you? Now you read on a little bit more. And what captures your attention is that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Now lurking in the background of this verse is the very fact that in your Older Testament, the high priest would enter through the veil that separated humanity from God symbolically as a daily reminder of God's sinlessness and our sinfulness, that high priest would enter through the veil on the Day of Atonement, and he would have upon his shoulders the names of the tribes of Israel. He would serve as the representative of the sinful ones in the Holy of Holies to the sinless one. But now, he himself would have to die, because he himself was sinful by nature. And then Jesus comes along. And the sinless one does not enter through the veil of that earthly temple. The sinless one enters and passes through the heavens, unlike any other priest. Therefore, you are seeing the supremacy of Jesus Christ your Savior, your Lord, who has come before God the Father as your representative once and for all sacrifice having been made. 
And so when he intercedes for you and intercedes for me, we think about the fact that there is representation by the sinless one within the heavens for you and for me, and the sacrifice has been completed, and we're overawed by the significance that is dripping in the midst of these verses here. We have, not there is, a great high priest who has passed not merely through the temple here on earth, the veil, who has passed through the heavens via death and resurrection. And the writer wants to highlight that, doesn't he? And so in chapter 6, verse 19 and 20, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the line of Aaron? No, he's of a different kind after the order of Melchizedek. And now this writer takes us one step forward and he names our great high priest, Jesus. And you say, but Gary, what's so significant about that? Because Joseph and Mary would know in Jewish tradition there had to be a naming of this child. The naming was typically done by the father, but there is a heavenly father who breaks in and delivers the meaning and significance of the name to Joseph and Mary. And in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, she will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. That is the meaning of the name of Jesus. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed not through the earthly temple's veil, but through the heavens. Jesus, God is our salvation. Notice the next descriptive. The Son of God. Now through the opening chapters of Hebrews, the writer goes out of his way to emphasize that Jesus is the Son of God. Quoting from the Older Testament, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. And the next time your friendly Jehovah's Witness appears at your doorstep and wants to argue, among other things, the divinity of Jesus Christ, you point him to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Jesus, your throne, O God, referencing his deity, is forever and ever. Son of God. Robert Ingersoll, the renowned atheist of his generation, was riding on a train with Lou Wallace, and they were approaching St. Louis. And they were talking about the churches there, and the steeples caught their attention. Wallace, look at all those church steeples. Such a waste of money. 
You and I both know that Christ did not really exist. Someone should tell the masses how foolish it is to worship a myth. It is a shame, agreed Wallace. Lou, why don't you write a book and prove to the world once and for all that Jesus Christ was nothing but a mythical figure, much less the Son of God, Ingersoll suggested. All right, Wallace replied. I believe I will. Listen to this. Lou Wallace spent much time and money investigating every shred of evidence that he could find. He read numerous books. He examined ancient manuscripts. Went to the Holy Land. Studied the Bible. And something strange happened to Lou Wallace. The more he studied, the more evidence he discovered to support Christ's existence. He searched more intently, more reverently, and the evidence became irrefutable. He concluded that Jesus Christ was one of the most and best documented figures in all of history, and furthermore came to the belief that Jesus was the Son of God. So Lou Wallace accepted Jesus Christ as his personal Savior. And he did, at Ingersoll's urgings, write a book about Jesus. But the message was the complete opposite of what Ingersoll had hoped. Anyone who has ever read Ben-Hur can appreciate Wallace's thorough research, deep reverent spirit, in search of the historical Jesus Don't you find it astounding that the sovereign God would use the urgings from the lips of an atheist to motivate a Lou Wallace to examine the evidence, come to the conclusion that Jesus is the Son of God, and then pen a book and offer historical, reliable understanding that Jesus is who Jesus claimed to be? That's your God. Since then, not merely there is a great high priest. Since then, we have a great high priest who has not merely passed through the veil of the temple, but has passed through the heavens. Jesus, God is our salvation, the Son of God historically documented. Here's your urging. Let us hold fast our confession, you see. Now, once you embrace this first biblical urging, you couple it with the second biblical urging, shapes your heart and my heart for receiving the bread and the cup. Because with the second biblical urging, faith Christ is our great high priest. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, verse 15 and 16. And you say, where do you get that, Gary? 
in verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. And what the Hebrew writer has done for you and me is to use two let us phrases to help us to master and couple this with confession and confidence. Let us, in our confession, let us with confidence We pull these strands together, and now we've got impetus for the bread and the cup motivating us to reflect seriously upon this great high priest who is our great high priest. And you say, I need another reason to shape my responsibility. He says, okay. And so in verse 15, he uses a double negative to get your attention and mine. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now there are two significant phrases, words there. I want you to connect his sympathy with our weakness. The word sympathy here carries with the idea to have to have fellow feeling with, literally. In other words, he enters into the same lifetime emotional, physical experiences that you and I do with the double negative. And you connect his sympathy to our weaknesses, physically, emotionally, and you look carefully at how both intensive and extensive his sufferings and his temptations were. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in Every, not some, but in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now you underlined that phrase, that title, Son of God, in verse 14. And you think about the baptism of Jesus. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, declared the sovereign God, the Father from heaven. Immediately, Jesus was whisked into the wilderness, and the tempter, the evil one, began to barrage him with this phrase, if you are the Son of God. In other words, turn these stones into bread. As you reflect upon this one, Jesus, the Son of God, according to verse 14. And then you wisely connect all those temptations that the evil one tried to deliver to Jesus in that wilderness experience. And you allow now Matthew chapter 27, and in verse 40, to understand both the intensive and extensive temptation Jesus faced. We're on that cross. 
Your great high priest heard this. You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you are the Son of God. Come down from the cross. Do you see both the intensive and the extensive form of temptation? And how from beginning to end, if you are the Son of God, was thrust in his direction? And now the writer of Hebrews picks up on this whole matter and ties the Son of God to the fact that we have this high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. He's one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet, and yet without sin. And our minds go back then to a comment made by C.S. Lewis, where in mere Christianity he penned this thought, powerful. A silly idea is current. That good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the Nazi army by fighting against it, not giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. And that is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They've led a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. Jesus is the only complete realist. It is the one who succumbs to temptation again and again and again who leads the sheltered life. Jesus led the most unsheltered life by making himself vulnerable by becoming man. Going into the wilderness to be tempted of the evil one. Going to the cross to die for our sins. And when you have the toughness to stand up to the temptations of this world by grace, you lead the most unsheltered life there is. It's the sheltered ones who continuously succumb, you see. Now again, this is why we don't celebrate communion. Rather, we commemorate the cross of communion. It sets the mood for us. There's a difference. And so in this commemoration, you consider how that veil was torn 
top to bottom. And now you look at this and you say, in light of that, I accept the second urging. And now the two let us phrases connect me, confession to confidence. Let us then with confidence as a sinful man going into the presence of the sinless one, as a sinful woman going to the presence of the sinless one. I can do so. Because the veil was rent in two, top to bottom. So we draw near to the throne of grace. I'm fascinated that it does not say to the throne of majesty. He could have said that. But I need grace, as do you. And so in this compassionate statement, let us then with confidence draw near, not draw from, but draw near to the throne of grace. that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. No other priest could accomplish this. Immediate access, unhindered freedom, continued communion the sinless one for the sinful ones and you know what he says to you and me I care about you so much you receive mercy you find grace to help in time of need which means literally timely help well timed help and you embrace what Dr. Kelly wrote give me no worldly success which may not lead me nearer did you get that nearer to my savior we praise you for that Father, we realize that that veil there to separate symbolically sinful humanity from sinless deity was a reminder of restricted access that only a representative, a high priest on the Day of Atonement could come in And with the names of the tribes of Israel listed upon his shoulders, stood before the sovereign God of the universe, but then had to leave. But we have a great high priest who entered and stayed, who on the third day was raised from the dead, validated, credentialed, And with the veil of the temple torn in two from top down, reminds us it's all of grace. And we commemorate that fact. In Jesus' name.